You're listening to Jar of Hearts by Jennifer Hillier. Read for you by January Lavoy. The soft ping of his email app wakes Kaiser Brody, and he reaches for his iPhone on the nightstand to check it. It's only 5.30 a.m. and not yet light outside. Beside him, Kim murmurs softly. She doesn't move. Her blonde hair fans out in messy strands over the pillow, and he watches her sleep for a moment, feeling that strange mix of emotions he always does whenever they do this. He'll have to wake her up at six so she has enough time to get back home before her husband, scheduled for night shifts this week, realizes she's been gone all night. Or maybe he won't wake her. See what happens, what excuses she'll make, both to her husband for being out all night, and to him when she tells him later on that they'll need to lie low for a few days until things at home settle back down. He sighs and clicks on the new email. It's from the prison guard at Hazelwood Correctional Institute, the one he pays to send him a monthly report on inmate number 110214, also known as Georgina Maria Shaw. It only costs him a hundred bucks, sent anonymously via PayPal, which isn't much. But over five years every month, that shit adds up. Their arrangement is over as of today, though, as Georgina is scheduled for release next week. Five fucking years. In some ways, it feels like the time went by fast, and yet in other ways, it seems like nothing has changed at all. The PDF report contains a lot of information that doesn't say much. There's a detailed log of her incoming and outgoing phone calls, her incoming and outgoing mail, and a list of everybody who's visited her over the past month. Other than her attorney and Kaiser himself, the only other person who's ever gone to see Georgina in prison is her father. Her ex-fiancé, that snooty CEO with the soft paunch and thinning hair, never went to see her once. Her phone records tend to show a bit more depth. She had her usual phone call with a man named Raymond Yu, who, according to his website, is an independent financial planner specializing in unique and outside-the-box investment opportunities. Kaiser can only assume this means the man's a pro in laundering money. And once a year on the same day, Georgina makes a long-distance phone call to a 90-year-old woman named Lucia Gallardo in Toronto her maternal grandmother. There's also detailed information about medical visits, only one in the past six months for a rash on her shoulder, her work assignment in the prison hair salon, volunteer efforts, she tutors fellow inmates working toward their GED, and even what she purchased in commissary, tampons, moisturizer, chocolate. If she filed any complaints or received any disciplinary actions, those would appear in the report as well. In five years, she never has. Which doesn't mean they haven't happened. Kaiser peruses these reports every month, telling himself he's keeping an eye out for any contact between Georgina and her ex-boyfriend, Calvin James. But if he's being honest with himself, and why the fuck would he want to do that? He knows it's simply because he wants to know how she's doing. The last time he saw her, she expressly told him not to visit her. So he hasn't but that doesn't mean he doesn't care. Not that he feels guilty for arresting her. He doesn't. Not really. 
but he can't say he ever felt good about it either. Accompanying every report is a paragraph personally written by the corrections officer, giving him tidbits on Georgina's life over the past month. This is really what he pays the hundred bucks for, the things that aren't in the report. Who her friends are, who she's argued with, who she's fucking, what contraband the CO suspects she's hiding, her overall morale. Georgina's been doing well. Her closest friends are a woman named Kat Bonaducci, a woman who killed someone while driving drunk and was sentenced to 15 years, and Ella Frank. The Ella Frank. Wife of James Frank, the drug kingpin, currently incarcerated for life in the Washington State Penitentiary. Georgina formed a friendship with her early in her stay, and the CO has noted several times that she might be involved somehow in Ella Frank's drug business. Kaiser doesn't give a shit. Far as he can tell, the Franks haven't had any contact with Calvin James, a.k.a. the Sweet Bay Strangler, and that's the only thing that matters to him. What Georgina does to survive in prison is her business. Everything okay? Kim's face is mushed into the pillow, her voice muffled. The room is dark, illuminated only by the glow of Kaiser's phone. Go back to sleep, he says to her, and she does. On the one hand, he likes that Kim's here, because it's nice lying beside someone who understands him, understands his work, and who doesn't expect or want anything more than what he can give. But on the other hand, he hates that she's here because she's married and he knows it's wrong. They've never discussed where this would go. The affair, an ugly word, but he's always believed in calling a spade a spade, started more than a year ago. Kim's husband, Dave, is also a cop, working out of a different precinct, and his hours are crazy. Their schedules rarely mesh. They were supposed to start trying for a family, but first Kim put it off, and now Dave's putting it off. She's lonely, hungry for attention and validation, and she needs a warm body next to her just as much as Kaiser does. But this can't go on indefinitely. It's already gone on way too long, and he's starting to get sick of the sneaking around, having to hide it from everybody at work. It isn't worth it, especially since he doesn't, nor will he ever, love Kim. Kaiser's not sure he's capable of really loving anyone anymore. It makes him the ideal cop. Nobody to apologize to for working long hours, no kids to worry about, no family plans to fuck up. Nobody to take care of, not even a plant or a goldfish. He can work the hours he wants, sleep when he wants, eat when he wants. He only really feels single, which is a dumbass word, a label designed to make people feel like losers because people are just people, at Thanksgiving and Christmas, and sometimes not even then. He was married once, to a nurse he met in the ER while getting stitched up after breaking up a bar fight shortly after he graduated from the police academy. It lasted a tumultuous 18 months, ending just as decisively as it began. He never blamed her. He'd become unbearable to live with, consumed with work, never putting her first. She left him for a guy she met on the internet, and when the ink was dry on the divorce papers, he swore he'd never get married again. He leans back on the pillow and brushes a strand of Kim's hair away from her cheek. You'd think after a year of this, her husband would catch on that his wife isn't sleeping at home when he's working. But so far, he hasn't, and maybe it's because he doesn't want to know. Kaiser met Dave once a few months back at the precinct's annual family barbecue, had shaken the man's hand. 
If the other cop suspected anything, he didn't show it. The smile had been warm to match the handshake, and they'd spent a few minutes talking about sports, which is what men do when they're new to each other and have nothing else to talk about. Kim stirs again, opens one eye, peers up at him. What time is it? Don't worry, he says. He knows the drill. I'll wake you at six. She smiles at him, pulls the covers up to her chin, and falls back asleep. He checks through the report again, hungry for details that aren't there. Is Georgina happy? Is she lonely? Is she excited to get out? Or is she dreading rejoining civilized society after what she did? The discovery of Angela Wong's remains 14 long years after the teenager went missing rocked Seattle because everybody remembered that case. There was wild speculation about what could have happened to her. Mike Bennett, the quarterback of the St. Martin's High School football team and her on-and-off-again boyfriend, was questioned extensively in her disappearance, leading some to believe he might have killed her. It could have ruined Mike's life, and yet Georgina had said nothing. The one thing he never asked her the day he arrested her was why. Why had she done it? And why had she kept it a secret? Deep down, though, Kaiser knew the answer. He didn't ask because he didn't want her to lie to him again. He remembers how she was with Calvin James, the profound effect Calvin had on her. She acted differently around him, spoke differently around him, moved differently around him. It was like Calvin tapped into a part of her control panel that nobody else could reach, turning on a switch that nobody else realized was even there. Not even Georgina herself. Calvin James changed her life. He had changed all their lives for the worse. He'd pulled off the prison escape of the decade, killing a prison guard and a counselor in the process. The three men who'd escaped with him had all been found dead in the months to follow. Not Calvin James, though. He's still out there somewhere. Kaiser still remembers the conversation he had with the serial killer at the precinct shortly after his arrest. The Sweet Bay Strangler sat easily in the interrogation room, hands resting on the table, his wrists cuffed together, relaxed. Jeans, T-shirt, no jewelry except for a watch with a leather band on his right wrist, which Kaiser always thought was strange as Calvin was right-handed. He looked completely unconcerned, as if he just assumed the world would fall into line with whatever it was he wanted. Which it always did in the end, didn't it? The arrogant son of a bitch. You know why you're here, don't you? Kaiser asked. Calvin nodded. You think I killed someone? His lawyer leaned over. I strongly suggest that you don't say anything, Mr. James. Let me speak for you. Calvin shrugged, again unconcerned. He'd been assigned a public defender, a thin, scraggly man named Aaron Rooney, whom Kaiser had met only once before. Rooney graduated from law school eight months earlier and was scratching out a living working for the state, which was about the worst job a lawyer starting out could have, with the worst clients. There was zero glory in being a public defender. Some trial experience, maybe, but the majority of cases were pled out and never saw the inside of a courtroom. Rooney was dressed in a baggy brown suit, his beard five days old, his hair flattened down with too much gel. We've been looking for you for a long time, Kaiser said. Three victims over the past nine years buried in shallow graves. I'm sure there are more, but we just haven't found them yet. Took us a while to ID you. 
Since we didn't know your name, we've been calling you the Sweet Bay Strangler. I like it, Calvin said. Want to know how we finally found you? Why don't you just tell us, the lawyer said. The first girl you killed all those years ago finally turned up, which now brings your murder count to four. Kaiser watched Calvin's face. The man's expression was neutral with only a slight etching of polite interest. Bright eyes. Handsome motherfucker. Might have been a movie star had he gone a different way with his life, but men like Calvin James, men who raped and murdered women, never went another way. Their urges always got the better of them. You remember your first one, right? You buried her body in the woods after you chopped her up? She was a high school junior, a cheerleader. Calvin said nothing, continuing to listen politely. In case you forgot, her name was Angela Wong, 16-year-old reported missing some 14 years ago. Kaiser slid a manila folder across the table and opened it. Inside was a high school photo of Angela, full color. She'd be 30 now, same age as me. And she was a good friend of mine, which makes me a little more than pissed off to be sitting across the table from her killer. Detective, if you have a personal grudge against my client, Rooney began. Fuck off, Kaiser said to him his eyes never leaving Calvin's face. Angela was a beautiful girl, wasn't she? Now there's nothing left of her but a pile of bones and her purse. Oh, and her camera, which had pictures of you in it. He leaned in. Tell me, did you know from the day you met her that you were going to kill her? Was it Angela you really wanted all along? I don't know if it was planned or not, and I don't give a fuck, but killing her gave you a taste for it, didn't it? except you didn't dismember the others, only Angela, only the first one. Calvin James's lips twitched, but he said nothing. You sick motherfucker, Kaiser said. Is that why you got close to Georgina back then, so you could get to her best friend? At the mention of Georgina's name, Calvin's mouth opened slightly. Then he smiled, the connection finally dawning on him. I know you, he said softly. Holy shitballs. You were their little high school friend, the skinny dude who was always following them around like a puppy, always so grateful whenever they paid any attention to you. You were persistent, I'll give you that. His grin widened, revealing even white teeth. I see your man meat finally came in. You're looking well, buddy, all grown up, all macho. Now you're a guy with a gun and a badge. Just look at you. Kaiser returned the smile. So tell me, how is our lovely Georgina? Calvin asked. How long did she keep you in the friend zone? Did you two ever get drunk and just make out one night? How far up her skirt did you get before she slapped your hand away? She never slapped mine. This is all very fascinating, but who's Georgina? Calvin's lawyer interrupted, looking pained. The criminal and the cop both ignored him. How involved was she? Kaiser spoke directly to Calvin. Did she help you? You haven't talked to her? Calvin sat back in his chair and rubbed his chin. The handcuffs clanged together. He looked as relaxed as could be. You should talk to her. I can't speak for her. She wouldn't like that. At the very most, she was your accomplice. Kaiser glanced at Aaron Rooney. The public defender seemed completely out of his depth. 
At the very least, she'll turn state's evidence against you. We're going to pick her up later today. Calvin snorted. So I guess that means you two aren't friends anymore. We have you cold, Calvin, Kaiser said with an icy smile. You don't have to talk to me. I'm sure Georgina will. And even if she doesn't, I'll find out what happened that night. Like you said, I've always been persistent. I'm like a dog with a bone with this kind of thing. I'll dig and dig until I figure it out. See you at the trial. He stood, pushing his chair out. She's still beautiful, Calvin asked. Not that she was quite as beautiful as Angela, but Georgina had something back then, didn't she? Something special. I think you and I were the only ones who ever saw it. We have that in common, at least. Fuck you, Kaiser said, bristling at the thought that he and this murderer were anything alike. Calvin James laughed. Kaiser's phone vibrates on the nightstand beside him, bringing him back to the present. It's five minutes before 6 a.m., and nobody calls him this early unless somebody's dead. He checks the number and answers it because he's a cop and that's his damn job. Morning, Lieutenant, he says softly so he doesn't wake Kim. Good morning. The voice on the other end is gravelly and female, the voice of a lifelong chain smoker who's only recently quit. It's his boss, Luca Miller. You sound awake. Been up for a bit. Got something for me? Two bodies near Green Lake. She coughed into his ear. Supposed to be Canning's case, but thought you might want it. Why's that? One of them is a dismembered woman, buried in a series of shallow graves. Kaiser sits up straighter. What did you say the address was? I didn't, she says, and recites it for him. You're shitting me, he says, stunned, when the GPS in his head pinpoints the location. I'll take a shower, be there in 30 minutes. No rush, they're already dead. Luca Miller says this without a trace of sarcasm. She's been on the job a long time and she's just stating facts. CSI's just starting, an hour's fine. When you get there, do what you can at the scene and I'll have Peebles ready for you. She's referring to Greg Peebles, the head medical examiner for King County. He's the best of the best, but he's usually unavailable at short notice because he's always in high demand. Peebles, really? Kaiser says. How are you going to make that happen? Rub a genie and make a wish? I said there were two bodies, Luca says. One's a child. That'll do it. They always prioritize children. And if the child was found with a dismembered woman, chances are the kid didn't die by accident. He disconnects the call. Kim sits up beside him, rubbing her eyes, her tangled hair spilling over her bare shoulders. She's not a classically beautiful woman, but she's undeniably attractive, and there's a warmth in her smile that people are drawn to. She's often compared to Jennifer Aniston. What's going on? He tells her, and when he finishes speaking, she looks more awake. You think this is Calvin James? She asks. It could be coincidence, but you know how I feel about coincidences. Anyway, it's after six. You should probably get going. Kaiser eases out of bed and heads for the bathroom. He doesn't have to walk far. His apartment is small. He likes it that way, less to clean. And besides, he's rarely ever home for long. I gotta take a shower. Want some company? He pauses, then sighs. 
Really, it has to stop. This can't continue. It's wrong and it's messy, and the longer it goes, the more complicated it feels. They work together for fuck's sake. She's his goddamned partner. He doesn't answer her, pretends he didn't hear the question. He enters the bathroom, but he leaves the door open. A drop of water lands on Kaiser's forehead, falling from a leaf or a branch somewhere above him. It drizzled earlier, and the scent of soil and trees would have been refreshing if not for the circumstances. Kaiser hasn't been in these woods in over five years. And yet the crime scene now looks eerily similar to the one from back then. Only this time around, there are two victims, a woman and a child. The woman was found first, or to put it more accurately, the woman's body parts were found first. Her torso is in one large piece buried two and a half feet deep in the ground between two trees. Scattered around it in a series of shallow mini-graves are her feet, lower legs, upper legs, hands, forearms, upper arms, and head. Her eyes are missing. Two jagged holes remain where her eyeballs once were, now scraped out of their sockets. Crime scene investigators are still looking for them, but they won't be found. Whoever took her eyes did so for a reason. It's anyone's guess what she looked like when she was alive. The face is cold and gray, the skin waxy, the lips pulled back from the teeth in the classic death grimace. There's too much dirt and soil matted into the hair to determine whether it's black or brown. Based on the tearing of the skin, she was taken apart with a tool that had teeth. Maybe a saw. Dismemberments are always horrific, but this one feels especially gruesome. She's buried in almost the exact same place as Angela Wong. He turns his attention to the child, whose body, thankfully, has been left intact. Found less than five feet away from the woman, the grave is a foot and a half deep, three feet long, one foot wide. A tiny grave for a tiny body. He looks to be about two years old based on his size and the number of teeth he has. He's dressed in Spider-Man pajama pants and a blue hoodie, no t-shirt, little legs tucked into shiny red rubber rain boots. While cause of death is always determined by the medical examiner, it's clear the boy has been strangled. The dark red marks around the throat and the self-inflicted bite marks on the boy's tongue are both consistent with asphyxiation, along with the telltale pinpoint blood clots in the sclera, also known as petechial hemorrhaging. Other than a few faded bruises on his shins, consistent with being an active toddler, he looks normal. The cheeks are still chubby, the belly comfortably round. The top of his diaper is sticking out of his pajama pants. Just a baby, really. The hoodie is open to reveal markings on the boy's small chest. At first glance, Kaiser thought it was blood. But it's not, because dried blood smears in the rain, and this has not budged. The killer drew on him, using dark red lipstick to draw a perfect heart. And in the center of the heart are two short words. See me. I see you, Kaiser says quietly to the dead child. I see you. The crime scene photographer bends over and takes several more pictures of the boy, the bright flash from the camera illuminating everything around her in brief sparks. This is terrible, huh? Seen anything like this before, Kai? 
she asks. He resists the urge to zip up the boy's hoodie. Yes, he says, his tone curt. She waits for him to elaborate, but he doesn't. Correctly sensing that he's not in a chatty mood, she steps back, leaving him alone with his thoughts. He nods to the paramedics, waiting patiently nearby with a stretcher, indicating that the bodies are ready for transport to the morgue. The crime scene techs are handling the female victim's remains, which all have to be photographed and cataloged individually. Are they mother and son? Is this the work of Calvin James? The heart on the boy's chest reminds Kaiser of the doodle on his notepad from the trial. Everything about this reeks of the Sweet Bay Strangler. Except for the gouged out eyes. That's new. As is killing a child. But monsters, like everyone else, can evolve. The scene is secure, cordoned off with yellow crime scene tape. The entrance to this section of the woods is located at the edge of a cul-de-sac, right between two houses on Briar Crescent. Kaiser leaves the woods and heads back to the street, unsurprised to find that a sizable crowd has gathered behind the road barricades. Curious neighbors, of course, along with a couple of news vans and a few reporters. Less than 200 yards away is the house with the blue door, Georgina's old house. He hasn't set foot inside it since he was 16, but he can still remember the smell of the crockpot, always bubbling with something. Neither Georgina nor her busy doctor father were ever great cooks, but they could make a mean beef stew in the slow cooker. How many times did Kaiser ring that doorbell to pick her up to go to the movies, or the food court at the mall? How many times did he sit in her living room watching Melrose Place, a show he pretended to hate but secretly enjoyed because it meant he could spend time with her? How many times did they sit on her floor in her bedroom drinking Slurpees from the 7-Eleven and listening to Soundgarden and Pearl Jam on the nights her father worked late? Right here on this street 19 years ago when they were juniors at St. Martin's High. And also best friends. Back when Angela was still here. Back before she was declared a missing person, before her face was on posters all over the city, before her bones were found in these same woods years later, before Calvin James was arrested, before Georgina went to prison, before, before, before. Kaiser wonders who lives there now, wonders if they know the baggage that house comes with, the secrets it hides. It was photographed extensively after Angela's remains were found. Reporters were titillated by the fact that her body was buried less than a football field's length away from where the woman charged with her murder slept every night. Kim Kellogg approaches, dressed in tight jeans and a fitted jacket, her blonde hair swept up into a sleek ponytail. The only indication that his partner is a police detective and not a college student is the gold shield clipped to her jacket. Kim is method where he's madness, and they're a good fit on the job. And in bed, too, if he's being honest. Everybody has a weakness. Kaiser's has always been unavailable women. How'd it go? He keeps his voice clipped and professional. There are too many other cops around for him to speak to her casually. I checked the missing persons reports in Seattle, she says. A stray strand of blonde hair blows across her face, and Kaiser moves to brush it away. He catches himself just in time. Nobody matches the description of the boy. I've sent a request out to the surrounding cities, so I'm sure we'll get a hit soon. He was healthy with newer clothes, Kaiser says. Somebody loved that kid. What about the woman? 
nothing yet. I have two officers down at the precinct working on it, but there are too many missing females in that age range. Where's the guy who found them? Kim points to an older couple standing on the sidewalk, talking with a few of the other neighbors. Mr. and Mrs. Heller. He found them. She called 911. I'll bring them over. Cliff Heller is a 60-something-year-old retiree with snow-white hair and a beard to match, and he looks completely traumatized to have discovered the bodies. Roberta Heller is a full foot shorter than her husband, dressed in a fluffy white bathrobe with exactly one pink hair curler secured above her forehead. In contrast, she looks elated to be involved in the most exciting thing that's happened in her neighborhood in a while. Her enthusiasm would be dampened considerably if she had actually seen the two dead bodies. I have a 69 vet that I've been trying to fix up for the past few years, Cliff Heller tells Kaiser. Body's in good shape. She'd be sweet if I could get her going again. I popped into the garage after breakfast, thinking I'd get a bit of work done on it before we had to leave for church. He doesn't care about the stupid Corvette, his wife interrupts. Right. So the dog starts yapping, and I thought I'd take her into the woods for a go. Heller sighs. Usually I walk her, but it was raining. He doesn't care about the rain, his wife snaps again. And that's when you found the bodies, Kaiser prompts. Maggie found them, Heller says, his shoulders sagging. He points to their house, where Kaiser could make out a furry golden face in the window, watching the street commotion. She started barking, and then she was digging at something, and I saw an arm sticking out of the dirt. At first I thought it was a doll, but when I got closer, I realized it wasn't attached to anything. It was, it was quite a shock. I fell back, and that's when I found the boy. Heller's chin begins to waver, and then his voice chokes. I know I wasn't supposed to touch him, but when I saw his face and his arm peeking out from the hole, I didn't think, I just reacted. I, I pulled him out of the dirt. He's so small, we got grandkids that age. He takes a deep breath and closes his eyes. When he opens them again a moment later, he's calmer. I didn't mess up the crime scene, did I? You reacted how any normal person would. Thank God. The confirmation that he didn't screw anything up seems to make Heller feel better. His wife rubs his back with one hand. With the other, she takes a sip of her coffee, her gaze flitting around watching the officers work. Kaiser asks a few more questions. Neither Heller remembers seeing anything strange the evening before. No unfamiliar cars parked in the cul-de-sac, no flashlights, and no noises or voices. We do go to bed pretty early, Cliff Heller says. Eight thirty, nine at the latest so we wouldn't have seen anything after then anyway. Say, does this have anything to do with Angela Wong? Roberta Heller asks brightly, looking up at Kaiser. The lone pink curler above her forehead bobs. You know the girl who went missing all those years ago? Her remains were found in these woods. I'm not sure if you're aware of that. It could be related. Walter must be going out of his mind wondering what the heck is going on. Kaiser's head snaps up. Walter? Walter Shaw. Mrs. Heller says. She points to the house with the blue door. His daughter was the one who- I know who she is. Kaiser stares at the blue door. He still lives there? He could have sworn Walter sold the house a few years back. 
Yes, and his daughter will be moving in with him in a few days, Roberta Heller sniffs. Back here, to this neighborhood. She's been in prison, you know. I like Walter, but let me tell you, his daughter is a piece of work. Uppity little thing with her big, important job, always clicking around in her high heels whenever she came back to visit. And all along, her best friend is buried in these very woods. I always knew something was off about her. Enough, Roberta, her husband says, placing a hand on her arm. Enough. It's all Kaiser can do not to rip the ridiculous curler out of the woman's hair. Instead, he hands Cliff Heller his card. You think of anything more, call me, day or night. The bodies are being moved. Kim has done a good job pushing the crowd farther away from the cul-de-sac, and only a handful of neighbors standing nearby can see the covered remains, one of them extremely small, being loaded into the backs of the emergency vehicles. Cliff Heller looks as if he might cry again, and even Roberta Heller softens a little at the sight of that tiny shape. Kaiser takes a moment to scan the handful of people who are still milling around. All appear to be residents of the neighborhood, coffee cups or dog leashes in hand. More than a few are still in their pajamas. Civilians are always drawn to the excitement of a crime scene. A second later, his eyes fix on a face. Not a face in the crowd, a face behind glass. Someone is home in the house with the blue door. Kaiser walks toward it, and a few seconds later, his finger is poised above the doorbell. The door opens before he can press it. Walter Shaw stands there, an inch shorter than Kaiser's own six feet, two inch height. His short hair is grayer, and there are more lines around his eyes and mouth than were there the last time Kaiser saw him five years ago. Other than that, Georgina's father looks more or less the same. You really still live here, Kaiser asks, more a statement than a question. I thought you would have sold the house. After the, after the trial. Hello to you, too. Walter doesn't appear happy to see him at all. Market was way down, and I wasn't going to sell it for pennies on the dollar. Besides that, nobody wanted it. Too much bad press, thanks to you. Is Georgina coming back here when she gets out? This is my home, which makes it her home. The older man crosses his arms. And where the hell else would she go? Kaiser stares at Walter Shaw, the father of his best friend from high school, the father of the woman he arrested. He'd sat at Walt's table, had eaten Walt's beef stew, had drunk Walt's beer when he wasn't home, had been in love with Walt's daughter. Georgina's father stares back. It feels like a face-off of sorts, neither man wanting to back down, but neither knowing what to say next either. Kaiser speaks first. Walt, I care about your daughter. I've always cared. I hope you know I was just doing my job. It's not exactly an apology, but it's the best he can do. After a moment, Walter nods. It's not exactly an acceptance, but it's the best he can do. He jerks his head toward the activity in the cul-de-sac. So what the hell's going on over there anyway? We're still figuring it out, Kaiser says. By the way, has Georgina ever said anything to you about where Calvin James might be? The older man frowns. He doesn't like the question. Before Kaiser can rephrase it, the door slams shut in his face. 
The dead child has been identified as Henry Bowen, aged 22 months. His parents, Amelia and Tyson Bowen of Redmond, filed a report first thing that morning, and as far as they know, their young son is still missing. Kaiser will do the official death notification when they arrive. At the very least, it's two mysteries solved. They know the child's name, and they've confirmed that their Jane Doe isn't the child's mother, though it might have been easier from an investigative standpoint if she had been. Thanks to the wonders of modern technology, also known as the smartphone, the photo Amelia Bowen used in her child's missing person report was taken at bedtime the night before. Kaiser has no doubt it's their boy. He has the same hair, the same front teeth, the same Spider-Man pajamas. Whatever happened to Henry occurred sometime between 11.30 p.m. when his mother checked the video monitor before falling asleep and 8.30 a.m. when she woke up and checked it again. What do we know about the parents, he asked Kim. They're in the small break room of the morgue where Kim tracked him down. She pulls out her little black notebook. Though she's a whiz at technology, Kaiser's partner is old school when it comes to note-taking, preferring to jot notes by hand rather than type into her phone as most cops did nowadays. She even uses pencil so she can erase mistakes if necessary. She says the act of handwriting helps her concentrate. They both work for Microsoft. He's a software engineer, she's in marketing. They live in a nice house. Zillow values it at just under a million. She drives a Lexus, he drives a BMW. Henry was in daycare at a place called Rainbow Jungle not far from the Microsoft campus. Rich, Kaiser says. Kim makes a face. That's not rich. That's slightly upper middle class, for Redmond anyway. He doesn't argue. He grew up in an apartment in Seattle with a single mother and ate Kraft macaroni and cheese three nights out of every week. His grandparents scraped together the money to pay for his Catholic education. Kim grew up near Bill Gates's neighborhood on the east side and went to private school. Their definition of rich differed, to say the least. What else? How did they sound on the phone? I didn't speak to them. I spoke to the officer who's bringing them here. Kim is fixing herself a coffee. It's common knowledge within Seattle PD that the morgue has the best coffee, for reasons nobody can explain. The mother said he normally wakes up around seven and hollers, but neither of them heard anything this morning, so they stayed in bed. She went to check on him around 8.30, found the window wide open and the little boy gone. She woke her husband and called 911 immediately because he's not yet able to climb out of the crib on his own. Do they have a nanny or a babysitter? Kaiser asks, thinking about the dismembered woman. His only caregivers are the ones at the daycare and the teenage girl who lives next door who babysits for date nights. The teenage girl is fine. I checked her Instagram, and she's already posted three selfies this morning. Kim tugs at her ponytail. None of the four caregivers at the daycare fit our Jane Doe. Two are too old, and the younger ones are both Jamaican. Our best bet is to ask the Bowens if they recognize her. Kaiser looks up at her. And how are we supposed to do that? Take a picture of just the nose and mouth? Shit, that's right, the eyes are missing. I forgot. Kaiser suppresses a sigh. Kim's a smart woman when it comes to certain things. Organized, meticulous with her notes and reports, very thorough. But every once in a while, her mind slips on an obvious detail for no fucking reason. It drives Kaiser batshit, but he bites his tongue. 
When are the parents getting here? He asks. There's traffic. Seahawks game. Might be an hour, maybe more. I'm going to go talk to Peebles. Kaiser stands up and stretches. The vertebrae in his spine crack in gratitude. Call me when they get here. He knocks before entering the room, though he doubts Greg Peebles hears anything when he's in the zone working. The bodies have been placed on examining tables a few feet apart, and the M.E. is leaning over the boy. The child is covered with a sheet from the waist down, the heart drawn on his chest stark and unfaded. See me. What the fuck does that mean? Donning a pair of latex-free gloves, Kaiser touches the heart gently with a gloved hand. It doesn't smudge. The woman has been, for lack of a better expression, pieced back together, and from a distance it might appear that she's intact. But she's not. Under the harsh lights of the overhead lamp, the half-inch gap separating her head, legs, feet, arms, and hands from her torso is glaringly evident. I hate that you brought me a kid, Greg Peebles says to Kaiser in his slow drawl. No matter what's going on, the medical examiner never sounds like he's in a hurry, never sounds rushed or stressed. It's a great quality to never be unnerved, but it can be a pain in the ass for Kaiser when he's under pressure to find answers, like right now. This is my least favorite part of the job. But a dismembered woman is okay? Peebles shrugs. I wasn't trying to be political, Kai. But an adult dead body shows up. Part of you can't help but think, even just for a split second, what could that person have done to deserve that? What situation did they put themselves in? But a dead kid shows up and nobody thinks that ever. Children are innocent. They're small. They can't defend themselves against predators. They've done nothing to warrant any violence against them. Bad things aren't supposed to happen to kids. It goes against everything we as a civilized society think is acceptable. Your protective instincts kick in. He pauses, then looks up, the light from his headlamp hitting Kaiser square in the eyes. Okay, perhaps that was a bit political. Can you turn that off? Kaiser asks, putting a hand up over his face to shield himself. Sorry. Peebles reaches up and switches the headlamp off. So, the bodies are clean. Come on, Greg. Kaiser stares at the child in front of him. He doesn't disagree with Peebles. There is something incredibly wrong with seeing a person that small on an autopsy table. He's a homicide cop and trained to be objective, but a dead child goes straight to the heart of what makes him human. But so does a dismembered woman, and he hopes he never loses that empathy. Don't fucking tell me that. Give me something. Start with the child. He's almost two years old based on his teeth, but you already know that. Peebles switches his headlamp back on, his voice morphing back into that professional but mellow tone he always uses when describing his findings. Well-nourished, no signs of sexual trauma or physical abuse, no traces of bodily fluids on his clothing other than a copious amount of dried saliva on his hoodie. Probably his own. He had molars coming in. Nothing under the fingernails? Bits of dirt and sand, but that's consistent with being a kid. He's been bathed recently. You can still smell the shampoo if you lean in close. 
Peebles leans over the body and inhales. If it were anyone else, it would be creepy. Bert's bees, same stuff my kids used when they were little. Supposed to be all natural. He wasn't neglected. His parents loved him. His head snaps up, blinding Kaiser again with his headlamp. Wait, the parents aren't the doers, are they? Doesn't look like it, Kaiser says, squinting. Cause of death? All signs point to asphyxiation. Pressure marks on the neck indicate someone used his or her hands. I'm guessing it was a male because the marks look like larger fingers, but don't take that to the bank. After my divorce, I dated this woman who had extremely large hands. It was rather disturbing. They made everything she touched seem small. Despite the gravity of the situation, Kaiser snickers. Peebles blinks, not sure what he said that was so funny. They move over to the next table. Now for our Jane Doe. Rehypnol and alcohol in her system, small traces of THC. She smoked marijuana sometime in the past two days, Peebles says. She also engaged in sexual activity. Traces of condom, lube, and spermicide are present. And while there are some indications the sex was rough, I can't confirm she was raped. Traces of skin under the fingernails. At least some of it's her own, but I'll test it. She was dismembered with a saw, definitely post-mortem. How post-mortem? Immediately after. It would have been messy. The unevenness of the cutting patterns suggests that the killer did it by hand, so not a chainsaw. No tattoos, a small birthmark on her upper right thigh. Hair brown, but dyed an even darker brown. Nice manicure. She was probably around 5'5", 120. I put her age around 21, maybe 22 years old, but don't take that to the bank. And her eyes? Kaiser asked. Removed with something dull. My first thought was spoon, but now I'm thinking butter knife because there's minute tearing consistent with that. Peebles straightens up and removes his headlamp. It leaves an indent in his graying hair. Fairly certain she was strangled with a foreign object, something stiffer that was placed around her neck. Bungee cord? Belt would be my guess. There are scratches on the side of her jaw where she would have clawed at it to get it off. There's bruising on her back as if someone held her down with a knee and choked her from behind. Want me to demonstrate? No need. Kaiser says. He can picture it. Remind you of anything? Peebles asks. His raised eyebrow tells Kaiser he's thinking the same thing. Or anyone? Calvin James. He lets out a long breath, thinking of the three women the Sweet Bay Strangler murdered after Angela Wong. All three were killed in a similar manner, right down to the knee in the back but he doesn't say anything further, and Peebles doesn't push. Greg's the medical examiner, Kaiser's the detective. They don't do each other's jobs. I thought I read something about him being spotted in Brazil, Peebles says, passing for a local looking tanned and healthy. Or was it Argentina? This might have been a couple years ago now. Kaiser doesn't answer. He'd read the same thing, but no police in any country had ever gotten a strong enough whiff of Calvin James to track him down. And that included the U.S. I'll give you some time with them. The M.E. peels off his gloves. 
They've been working together a long time, and if anyone knows what the detective's process is during this stage of a homicide investigation, it's Greg Peebles. The door closes, and Kaiser pulls up a stool between the two tables. He focuses on the child. Only the night before, this little boy had been alive, laughing, splashing in the tub, playing with his toys. One or both of his parents shampooed his hair with the Burt's Bees stuff lovingly, believing, as was absolutely their right, that there would be 10,000 more baths, 10,000 more laughs, 10,000 more bedtimes. They're about to receive the worst news of their lives. There will be crying, shouting, and hysteria interspersed with denial and disbelief. They'll weep over the child, then turn on each other, one accusing the other of leaving the window unlocked, one blaming the other for not checking on Henry first thing in the morning. Whether they can get through it, only time will tell. But the divorce rate for parents who've lost a child to kidnapping or foul play is exorbitantly high. They're each other's best reminder of the worst thing that's ever happened to them. And the woman. She was somebody's daughter, granddaughter, friend. People are missing her, too. She wasn't a transient. Her teeth are white. She colored her hair. Her fingernails are covered in gel overlay, something you had to pay a manicurist to do. Homeless women did not spend money on manicures. And yet somebody had desecrated her, cutting her into pieces like she was a cardboard box ready for disposal. It was something only a monster could do. Kaiser had met a monster like that once, had been introduced to him through his old friend Georgina. And what does she know about this? She might be in prison, but has she been in touch somehow with Calvin James in a way that doesn't show up on those monthly reports? Is she aware that two dead bodies have been found in the woods behind her house just days before she's due to come home, killed in a similar manner to her old boyfriend's signature style? Kaiser reins himself in. It's extremely dangerous to assume this is the work of the Sweet Bay Strangler. He has to stay objective or he'll miss something. Besides, it would be incredibly reckless and stupid for Calvin James to come back here. Not that psychopaths operate using the same logic as regular people. Kaiser touches the heart on the boy's chest again. The dark red lipstick really does resemble blood. With any luck, they might be able to find out what brand it is, and if it turns out to be something exotic or hard to get, it might provide a lead. A long shot, but they had nothing else to go on. I don't know how you can sit in here by yourself, Kim's voice behind him says, and he jumps. She's back, a sheet of paper in her hand. I know this is how you work, but it's strange. Kaiser stifles his annoyance, both at her comment and at being interrupted. What's up? The parents are here. That was fast. Alarmed, Kaiser stands up. The body isn't ready. The boy needs to be washed before they can see him. I thought it would be longer, but traffic opened up. You have to go talk to them at least. They're going out of their minds. Fuck, Kaiser thinks fast. Okay, call counseling services. Get a grief counselor here pronto. And then go find me a mask. Kim blinks, confused. What kind of mask? Some kind of mask, Kaiser says, impatient. He hates having to explain things to anyone. As much as he likes Kim, he's irritated that after a year of working and sleeping together, she still can't read his damn mind. Not a costume mask, 
something plain like a sleeping mask, so I can cover the woman's empty eye sockets and take a picture. Hopefully they can tell us who she is. No need for a mask. There's an app for that. Huh? Kim reaches over and plucks his iPhone out of his jacket pocket. She taps at the screen for a few seconds, then hands the phone back. It's called a sensor bar app, she says. You take the picture, then add a black bar anywhere you want. Seeing the look on his face, Kaiser is the first to admit he's not great when it comes to new technology. She takes the phone from him again. Allow me. She positions herself above the table where Jane Doe is and snaps a photo. She then taps the phone again a few times before handing it back to Kaiser. The whole thing takes less than a minute. Done. Saved in your camera roll. I even filtered it a little to make her skin look like it has some color. Just be sure not to accidentally show them the original. He checks the photo and has to admit he's impressed. From the neck up with the black bar across the eyes, the woman in the photo still looks dead, but not as dead. Thanks to the filter Kim used, the grayish skin appears pinker. This actually works. Thanks. She puts a hand on his arm. This is bugging you more than usual, isn't it, Kai? You think this is Calvin James? Clearly everyone else seems to think so, or they wouldn't keep asking. Kim wasn't his partner back when Angela's remains were found, and Kaiser didn't even work the first two Sweet Bay Strangler murders. They were another detective's cases. But yes, it's hitting him hard. It all feels too familiar, too close to home, as if this is all happening specifically to remind him of the past. Again, it's a narrow-minded line of thinking and very dangerous. His job isn't to find evidence to fit the theory. It's to come up with a theory based on the evidence. He has to stay objective, but it's getting harder. In the elevator, Kim touches his hand, speaking in a low, soft voice. Dave's working tonight, graveyard shift. I can come over after 10.30, stay all night, if you want. Maybe, Kaiser says. But he already knows he wants her to, and he hates himself for it. That's all for now. Thank you for listening. Make sure to follow this podcast to get the next episode. Or if you just can't wait, you can buy the audiobook of Jar of Hearts wherever books or audiobooks are sold. Thank you.